This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Well, thank you. I'm glad that you've all stayed. That was a fantastic concert. I had such a good time. I want to dance. That's the only problem is that there's not a dance floor in here, right? Oh, that's great. Thank you. Trading microphones. So I would, I would love to hear more about you, how the two of you have worked together and developed pieces through this process of collaboration that's been going on for a number of years. This was, first of all, I, I just I want to say, John, this is such an incredibly beautiful piece that the second movement is exquisite, and I want to hear it more. <laughs> I just want to indulge it. It's uh, we'll, we'll arrange for that. <laughs> Well, um, you know, this is the first thing we've actually really collaborated on. Uh, you know, we work with John on, we did a portrait concert where we played a whole bunch of his music, basically all of the music that he has written for our instrumentation. Plus, we actually arranged, um, Kayla Burhans, one of our violinists, arranged one of John Adams' synthesizer pieces uh, for us. And so, um, and John Orff, our pianist, did a ferocious arrangement of Short Ride in a Fast Machine for solo piano, which really has to be heard to be believed. Um, and so we did that performance, uh, and you know that was most. Those pieces were all very much finished, um, and the chamber symphony was something we had really you know developed on our own and had sort of you know come to our own sort of vision of. And we just brought it to John, and that was great. But then with gnarly buttons, which was a piece that was new for us, uh, John came in and sort of helped us figure out what it was about in some spots where it, you know we hadn't really made sense of it yet. Uh, and then so that sort of laid the groundwork for this kind of relationship where John was here working with us and actually conducted the ensemble some and, um, and you know, both helped us make sense of the piece, but also was tinkering with the piece, was making changes with it you know, while we were playing it, um, which was a really amazing experience for us to watch him, watch him work. John, how, how does your thinking about this ensemble change over the course of writing a number of works for this instrumentation? Well, I don't think it has changed a great deal. I was amazed at how much this sounded like my other chamber symphony, uh, which is already 14 years ago, um, that I, I thought I was writing something very new, but it's sort of new. Um, but it definitely belongs to the same family, so maybe the title was the right title. Um, and I, you know, I'd heard... Uh, I hadn't heard you do the uh, Aphex Twin pieces live, but I heard them on, on recording, and I, um, I was very impressed by the, by the edgy, sc scratchy, gnarly quality of the playing. Um, you know, we can have the Philadelphia Orchestra play some of our music, but then you want things that are edgy and, uh, you know, kind of on the edge, make you, make you feel like your seat is wired. Um, and that, that's one of the unusual qualities of this group. They're young and, uh, you know, I have that aspect in my musical character. I can, I can write big, lush, romantic sounding pieces, and, but I also have a part of me that's... Um, the same composer that wrote a, a piece with a title called Gnarly Buttons. And it's just a, 
It's just, it's, it's an area that I access in myself from time to time. Um, it's definitely got humor and very um, sort of spiky rhythms and it's very virtuosic. I mean, I'm glad I wasn't up here playing this piece tonight. It, it's very, very difficult and the parts arrived. I won't even tell you when they arrived. It's a huge amount of work to make a piece. This piece is 24 minutes long and um, it looks just like a full orchestra because you know it has all the individual instruments and then it has violin, one violin, two violin, viola and cello. Now with a regular orchestra you multiply violin one by 16 <laughs> but it isn't any more work for the composer. <laughs> But I had to do this, you know, so in a way this was just as much work as writing a full orchestra piece. But um, what I like about it is, is, is that there's no pretension to, be, to it being, um, you know, rich and resonant and flowing and buxom. Uh, it's, it's sort of like shaving with a dull razor. <laughs> There were buxom moments. Yeah, a couple of buxom moments. <laughs> and and uh, I knew that this, this group, you know, I first heard most of them at Eastman about seven or eight years ago. Um, and Caleb, the first violinist, played my, uh, the solo part in my, my other chamber symphony, which, which is a famously difficult thing. And I remember he had high-heeled wingtips and a, and a sort of Thelonious Monk hat and each one of his uh, fingernails was painted a different color <laughs> and I thought that's, that's the, the new look. Uh, forget Pierre Boulez and the ensemble intercontemporain. This is the way new music's going to be. Well, I, I was really interested to see how much this group moved around on stage and sort of the, the, the new music, concert music version of marching band in a way. <laughs> Without spelling the letters and the, the vantage point. And I, I'm very curious about the, the way um, the program has a sort of kinetic quality that you don't resist, that you actually indulge through movement. And um, one of my colleagues in, in the audience asked, whether that's part of the rehearsal process from the beginning, if you start out you know, expecting that there will be um, a movement or if you sit at the stands and, uh, and work through the music that way. You know, we've, we've learned, we've done a couple of shows like this, a couple of different programs that we've done like this over the last like three or so years, and we've sort of learned how to do it. Um, you know, because every time we get together, we only get together for you know, three or so days at a time. Um, and so there isn't, you know, tons and tons of hours of rehearsal to workshop this stuff. Um, the movement comes out of the way we play naturally. I mean, even when we play, um, you know, a piece like, like, the, like um, John's piece, where we're all sitting down in our stands, or the Burt Whistle, which we've played a bunch of times and so we're very comfortable with, even though there's no staging in the Burt Whistle, we just move a lot. The group, you know, looks at each other, they connect with each other, they move. And the staging came out initially out of an interest in sort of highlighting that. We have a staging director who works with the band regularly, uh, who's actually not here tonight, uh, but who staged all these pieces with us. And the process is a gradual one. Um, we never work on staging on something until we've performed it. 
Um, so we, you know, we always do at least one performance without, stage, without staging. We always let the players know long in advance. Like we, we announced um, to the group back in, I think, June, which pieces on this program were going to be staged. Um, and the way it works is we sort of build them up over time. So when we got together in September, we did mostly the same program. Obviously, John's piece wasn't done, and so we did some other pieces in place of that. But we did the same program with no staging. Um, but while we didn't perform the staging, while we were together rehearsing for that program, we rehearsed the staging. So the staging director came and worked on it with us, but we didn't perform it. The next time we did that concert, we staged about three of the pieces um, and then continued to work on the other ones. So it's a very gradual process. There's a real kind of, you know, it's very difficult for players to do all the things they have to do already. You know, playing music is really hard. Playing this music is really hard. And it's difficult for them to do all of that and think about, you know, who they're looking at, how they're moving their bodies, where they're going. And so we, we were patient with it. And we, you know, develop it gradually. And there were several pieces tonight that we were performing stage for the first time. The Ligeti was new. Um, the Joss Can was new. Um, the Moshi Pet was new. And maybe a couple others, too. So now this program has reached a sort of maximum staging capacity. We have no plans to stage John's piece or the Burt Whistle anytime soon. <laughs> However, my piece will be staged by Mark Morris uh, in April. And I've actually seen uh, some of the choreography. He's doing it with uh, marvelous dancers from the San Francisco Ballet. And they're all, you know, 21, 22 years old. Just amazing things they can do with their bodies. I, I went to the first rehearsal, and I went home, and I hurt myself doing yoga. <laughs> I, I lost track of how old I was. Um, but it's interesting because Mark, uh, Mark's take on it, on the piece, is uh, actually very, very much a Balanchine take. It's very uh, fluid, but also amazingly abstract. Um, most of the gestures are very classical gestures. It's really wonderful to look at Mark's score because uh, you know, he works off the musical score, just like uh, a conductor almost. And he has all these words for jeté and... and pas de deux, and all these classic terms, even though Mark is this amazingly imaginative choreographer. But I realized that uh, in his mind, there are still these artifacts, these objects uh, from the repertoire, from the canon of dance, and that he uses them uh, in the same way that I, I do. Um, you know, we're not modernists. Neither Mark nor I are modernists in that way. We, we use artifacts from the past and then sort of um, reintegrate them into our language. However, there is one gesture in the middle where in the midst of all this incredibly elegant things, uh, the women suddenly do a kickboxing, <laughs> which is, uh, brings it back home suddenly. I'd love to open um open this up to the audience and share my microphone with someone. I'm going to come down and uh, if you'll raise your hand, I'll, I'll do the Phil Donahue approach and come find you. Are there questions you'd like to ask John Adams or... Oh, sorry. Oh, did you raise your hand too? Okay. 
Uh, yeah, uh, this is, uh, I can't remember your name, not for John Adams, but for the alarm will sound conductor. Alan. Alan, okay. Uh, so it seems to me that maybe 15 or 20 years ago, if you had a young chamber ensemble who wanted to maybe appeal to a younger audience or play something that they thought was interesting and not very stud, it would be Frank Zappa. And so instead of Mochipet, you would have your drummer just doing the black page or something like that. And now it seems as if it's not just you, but other groups are doing uh, the electronica stuff. So the London Sinfonietta has done a lot of things with warp records, with Ives and Ligeti and whatnot. Um, and so what I'm wondering is why, well, two, two things. Why Aphex Twin? Uh, why Motripat? Both why him or these people specifically? And why this sort of exercise in arranging more commercial, relatively more popular music into this format? Well, I mean, the, the general question is sort of why we play what we play and the diversity of it is that, you know, the, what we play really is an expression of what the group uh, is listening to and is interested in. Um, we kind of refer to it as iPod programming, where, you know, the group has wonderfully diverse tastes and everything we do comes out of what the ensemble is interested in. And the idea to do these electronic arrangements um, started with uh, Caleb Burhans, who John was talking about earlier, who's our violinist, um, and one of our percussionists at the time, Dennis DeSantis, who just had this idea to take this music and arrange it. Um, and because they just love the music. And so it really, it didn't come out of an, of, out of an interest in you know, appealing to a younger audience. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't really motivated by marketing. I mean, we, we figured out once we, you know, once we kind of came up with the idea that this might reach a different kind of audience for us. Um, but it was very much as everything we do is motivated by just what we love, the music we love playing, what we want to listen to. Um, and part of the excitement, I think there were two things that made it specifically interesting to arrange you know, these pieces. Um, one is the kind of coloristic virtuosity of them. Uh, the, uh, both the Aphex Twin piece and the Moshi Pet, um, like the piece we did as an encore, Cockver 10, is just filled with so much, this rich imaginative color. Um, and, you know, I mean, of course, it's all electronic, but just incredible kind of orchestration, just wonderful, wonderful sounds. And so the challenge of figuring out how to take those sounds completely conceived electronically and make them work for live instruments with no electronics was a really great imaginative challenge for us. And we actually spent a lot of time, we were in residency at um, the Dickinson College in Pennsylvania at this time, and we spent, um, I think we got together for about 10 days or two weeks, which is a long time for us. And just, we were all we were staying in a big house together, and we just spent our days, you know, playing with instruments and figuring out what sounds we could make with them and how to get at some of these bizarre sounds. Um, and then the other challenge is just the virtuosity of playing them, taking this music, which was never imagined for live instruments, um, which is really, you know, often seems too fast to be done by live instruments. And I remember the first rehearsal we did of Cockver 10 saying, guys, we just, we're not going to get this up to tempo. It just, we just can't play it that fast. And then figuring out that we actually could do it. Um, so that was a wonderful challenge and really energized the whole group. Um, and the specific choice of Aphex Twin, I think, you know, when we came up with the idea of doing these electronic arrangements, we, basically everyone in the group brought all of their favorite electronica, and we shared it with each other, and we talked about it, and we debated maybe we should do an album where we take, you know, different pieces by different artists, 
Um, and eventually we settled on Aphex Twin because of the incredible diversity of um, what he wrote. I mean, you know, he did the, the piece that I was playing the drum on, Gwely Mernon's is his also, and completely different from Cockverton. So we were really into the idea of just, you know, taking the incredible range of Aphex Twin's music and doing an incredible range of arrangements of them. Um, and so that was, that was sort of the, the impulse behind doing that specific artist. Yeah, I just had a simple question. I was wondering um, if, uh, if you're going to be releasing uh, the Mochipat track on an album or anything, or when that's going to happen. We just recorded it a couple days ago, and it'll be coming out, I don't know, Gavin, when is it going to be coming out? <laughs> we don't know. But yes, it'll be out on an album. Super. Hi, I saw you conduct your opera last year at the San Francisco Symphony. I found it incredible, very authentic, uh, very self-contained, but I cannot articulate where that is in the music. Could you help me understand how that piece has that authenticity and that unique sound which, which uh, you were able to give it? Thank you. Uh, you're speaking, I think, of a flowering tree, which is a, a, a smaller opera, uh, that I did um, after Dr. Atomic, and it's, it's based on a, uh, basically a fairy tale from south, uh, south of India. Um, in that particular piece, I really, my model was Mozart's uh, magic flute. In fact, the piece was commissioned for the Mozart Bicentennial in Vienna, and we gave the first performance in Vienna um, and I just tried to write something that was extremely simple and was very direct and very melodic uh, without it sounding uh, retro or uh, too much in love with its model. It doesn't sound like Mozart at all. I don't know. I, I tend to compose... Um, I wouldn't say I compose in a trance, but I compose very, very intensely and I do it every day um, and when I'm the, the, the struggle with a piece is always the beginning because you want this piece to be the best thing you've ever written and you go through a big struggle because what you're coming up with isn't as good as what you wrote before and at some point you just finally have to say well to hell with it I'm going to go with this anyway and once you've gotten over that hump you can always go back and fix the beginning, but um, you just sort of get into the world of that piece. And um, I try not to um, fret too much. I, I feel that I have the, the technique and the ideas. And if the pieces, the pieces come really quickly, and I, I do think there are dangers to writing too fast. There are a lot of dangers to it, but one of the good things about it is the piece tends to be uh, sort of genetically whole tends to tends to everything and it seems to relate to everything else and I wrote that entire opera in uh, less than a year um, it, it, at, at significant physical cost I didn't want to do that ever again but I think that if you've got that feeling of unity from it, it may have just been because of the extreme uh, compressed nature of the composition
Hi, you spoke about artifacts, and I was wondering, uh, two quick questions. One, uh, was Beethoven's Ninth in there? Bump it bump it bump it <laughs> Yeah. And the other one is, how are you going to do this again? Is it going to be grandson or nephew? What is it going to be? Oh. Yeah. I think probably I've squeezed enough out of that. If I do another symphony, I'll, I'll call it, I don't know, <laughs> the tragic symphony or something. <laughs> I, I don't know. Two questions, one quick one for each of you, or not so quick. Jenny already mentioned the second movement and just astounded by the melody, but I just wondered, did that come to you entire and then you wrote the movement around it or did it just evolve or if that makes sense to ask. Uh, you know, usually I write the chord progression first. Um, I write the chord progression out, and I have a number of pieces that have that very same trope. It's basically a strumming and a whole long, gradually changing chord sequence. And then I do that first, and then I go back and I put the melody over it. So I'm very much, in a sense, like a jazz musician improv improvising on the, on the melody. And melody, good melody, really does reflect the harmony. Um, and for me, the great moment as a student was, there was an old, remember the publisher Calmus? I guess they're still around. Um, but they had an edition of the Well-Tempered Clavier. And in, in front of the very first, the famous C major, prelude that we all know, the only one we can play, um, they had... Bach's original, just the chord progression. And it, 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 it was a revelation to me to see how you could create a piece of music by just simply, uh, basically, arpeggiating a chord progression and how Bach's thinking was this series of chords. So very often I do that, particularly for slow movements. Um, a very uh, knowledgeable listener in the audience who knows a lot of my music said that he recognized uh, the first chorus in the death of Klinghoffer, the uh, chorus of exiled Palestinians. It's the same, the same kind of trope. I think it's time for me to move on <laughs> and not write that slow movement again, but it worked here. It certainly did. And just for Alan, I have to ask, what were you listening to during the shags? <laughs> I was listening to a click track. Um, so Gavin, who's Alarm Bowl Sound's managing director over there, um, who arranged that piece for us. Hi, Gavin. Uh, that's a great arrangement. Thank you very much for that, Gavin. So, you know, when we first came up with the idea of doing the shags, which I think was Jason's idea, um, the, the question was how to arrange it. And there were sort of two basic approaches. One would have been uh, to keep everything in the same meter so that I would be conducting the whole ensemble, including the drum set, and then, you know, the notation would look sort of like, like a Brian Fernieho piece, um, where you would have all these incredibly complex rhythms. Um, the other approach, which is the one that we chose, was to actually have two different click tracks. Um, so the music is very simple. What's written on the page is actually very, very simple. The thing is that the drum player is, you know, in one click track. And so a click track is just a beat that you're listening to on a set of headphones. So he has his headphones, and his beat is doing the slowing down, speeding up, changing tempo. And mine's doing the same thing completely independently. Um, and so, you know, the challenge uh, is to just stay with that click. 
um, and not be thrown by what the drummer is doing. When we've done this before, the entire ensemble has had the click. Um, and this time, it was just me doing it. And I have to say, that was the thing that I was most nervous about in the entire program. Um, John's piece coming in second. Uh, because it's actually it's very difficult to stay with this constantly changing tempo and keep the players with it too when they're not actually hearing it. This question is for Alan Pearson. I was very intrigued at the great audience response for that choreographic approach to chamber music, which most of us had never encountered. I'm wondering, is this something that you find other groups beginning to pick up on? Because it seems to me it might be a very significant trend. Well, you know, I think there's been, there are a lot of, I think there's a lot of interest in having a visual component to music. Um, you see a lot of groups experimenting with multimedia, you know, film playing, doing performances, things like that. Um, and I think there's a general, is there, I think there's a lot of interest in the air in sort of breaking away from the conventional kind of uh, concert model. Um, I, you know, I think we have our own take on it, uh, but I think that, that that general idea is out there. There's also a group, 8th Blackbird, that I know, um, I haven't actually seen them in quite a while, but I know that they also, you know, do a lot of movement uh, when they play. Um, I, I heard Lauren Mazzell is doing this with the New York Phil next week. That's awesome. I think it's Bruckner, Bruckner 9th. Oh, yeah. wow. <laughs> There's one piece, I think the most effective piece that we've, um, that we've staged. Uh, Nigel Maester is a theater director who works with us. Um, he's a really brilliant guy. And there's a, a piece we did, another Aphex Twin arrangement called Cliffs. Um, which is beautiful and very solemn, arranged by Caleb Burhans again, who we keep talking about, one of our violinists. Um, and it's a gorgeous arrangement and a really beautiful ambient piece. And um, Nigel came to us one day, came to me one day and said, I know, I've got it. I want everyone to lie on the ground while they play. And um, we said, oh God, Nigel, they're, they're, players can't do that. Um, but we were just off a really great experience with Nigel doing Verez, and the players said, well, we'll try. And it's just amazing to see an entire ensemble, including our bass clarinet player, lying on her back with the bass clarinet, looking like it might kill her at any moment. Um, and then a few players sort of walking solemnly around the ensemble. And the feeling of it is like, um, like being on a battlefield, like the, people, the, the few people left standing on a battlefield with all these bodies. And it's very eerie and very spooky and very beautiful. Um, so, yeah, it's, been a, it's really a great, been a great experience. And I hope to see, I hope people do, if not do that in particular, but, um, you know, it's great to see more groups breaking out of the conventional sort of concert presentation mode. And, you know, performances, performances are performative um, and finding ways to bring the music across to the audience um, beyond just sort of trying to play it well. Uh, question, question for John. Uh, the fact that uh, the chamber, Son of Chamber Symphony was going to be choreographed by Mark Morris, did that have any influence on, on you as you were writing it? Oh, sure, because uh, dancers really need to feel the pulse. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's really un it's cruel to dancers not to give them a clear pulse. And um, I had, you know, this was hard enough. The first movement is very, very difficult to dance to because even though the pulse you know, on one level is regular. There are all these stops and starts and, and you know, meter changes and things like that. Um, yeah, the first piece I ever wrote for choreographer, I wrote for Lucinda Childs, and it was a big tape piece, and I, I just big, did this big wash of sound with no pulse in it, and it was just 
awfully hard for her to, you know, f find find something to hold on to. So I learned my lesson about that. Other questions? <laughs> uh, I think this was a criticism, but it, he, 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 he asked if I ever feel the urge to write something that's not in three movements. Uh, yeah, I, I do feel that urge. Um, you know, um, there's a kind of platonic perfection about, about the three movement. Um, so, so I, I don't worry about it too much. I mean, uh, I, there are certain pieces of music, maybe some of my favorite pieces of music are not even in movements. I think of the Sibelius Seventh Symphony, which uh, probably means more to me than any other symphonic piece. Uh, or Beethoven, the, you know, the late Beethoven piano sonatas or string quartets that are in five movements or six movements, but um, they're strange, strange beings in a way. Uh, that I think it's the Opus 130, the string quartet that has five movements. Uh, one movement is a dance, a little dance movement. And you get into situ situations where you have to um, minimize uh, your expression, the more movements. Um, but I do, I do like the three movement um, idea because it's, uh, it's got a certain kind of... Uh, expressive perfection to it, but I'll, I'll try two for you next time. <laughs> I think there's some East Bay people here probably dying to get, get, out, get out and fight traffic, so maybe hey, just we'll, one more question. we'll have one more question, oh. including me. Right. <laughs> you, you talked a little bit about the, the composition of the second movement. Could you talk about the first and third? Where the, <clears throat> what are the artifacts? How'd you develop it? Uh, that sort of thing. Oh, the only artifact is the bump it up. Uh, which actually came uh, more out of manipulating uh, rhythmic material that was suggested earlier on, and I dropped it an octave. And, you know, that's a wonderful thing about Beethoven, that his, his ideas are so utterly rudimentary, they really are at the arch archetypal level. You know, it's simply a very, very common uh, rhythm that you find in prosody all the time, not just in music, da 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 and he drops it an octave, which is, you know, the most fundamental musical interval. And he's got the trademark, <laughs> you know. You can't use it without it sounding like the scherzo to the ninth. But I, you know, I went with it. Um, but most of the rhythmic material comes right at the early part of the, uh, of the piece, which I'm very, very proud of, actually, what happened there. Because uh, it's, to beat it, it's very simple. It's just in three. But I... I set up these, uh, these rhythmic divisions of the pulse that make you first think that the piece is this sort of fast tarantella and then another instrument en enters and you say, oh, no, wait a minute, the, the pulse is here. And then another instrument enters and then, oh, the pulse is actually here. But it's all part of a, of a sort of mega pulse and um, that's where all the material came from uh, for the rest of that movement. The last movement actually... Uh, the story behind that is, is that I, I was halfway through the, 
the piece, and I got a request from Kronos to write a little piece to celebrate Peter Sellers' 50th birthday. Peter Sellers, my longtime collaborator. Um, and I couldn't say no to that. And so I stopped and wrote this piece. And then I thought, oh, no, I'm not going to finish this piece in time for, for this concert. And then I thought, ah. Uh, <laughs> so that's where this came from. Um, and two members of Kronos were here tonight. And they came up stage and said, hmm. <laughs> um, but actually, the piece comes from Nixon in China. Uh, if, if those of you who know the news area, when Nixon gets off the plane and there are all these Chinese dressed identically, and Joe and Lai is there, and Nixon comes down off the plane, and he shakes hands with each one of them, but he's singing into the camera about it being prime time in the USA and, and news, and, and so it has that da 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 so... I'm at the age where I'm starting to cannibalize myself, which is, which is bad. Anyway, thank you very much for coming. Thank you. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.